Good morning. I'm uh, Pastor Tim Rogers, and I join my voice in welcoming you. If this is your first time with us, we're glad to have you. If it's your second or third time, we're also glad to have you. We're glad to have you no matter what. And uh, we hope, as always, that you find refreshment and encouragement with us as we gather together on these Sunday mornings. We are now returning to a series, a teaching series that we began a year ago in uh, 2012. We finished right before Advent the first part of a series called These Words. And so we're returning now in the new year to that series. Just to put it back in context, this has been a couple of weeks or months since we've been there. These words are really the words of Jesus. And in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7, Jesus is, is, um, finds himself on a mount, the Sermon on the Mount, really. And he's speaking to people who have come and want to know who in the world is he and what does he have to say about the world and life and the kingdom of God. And, and is he a heretic or who is this teacher who's drawing great crowds? And what he ends up saying at the end of Matthew chapter 7 that we're going to get to in a couple of weeks is that if you listen to these words and do what they say, then your house, and here's our house image, your house, or it's a metaphor for your life, your world, your everything will be built. If you listen and do these words, your house, your life will be built on the rock. So that when the storms of life come, and there's image for the storms, when the storms of life come, your house and your life will not be destroyed. But if you listen to these words and don't do what I say, then your house is like being built on the sand. And when the storms of life come, it will be destroyed and it will be, be gone. And the people who are listening, our text says that they were amazed at his teaching because of the authority that he had. So his teaching was different than the teaching of anyone else at that time. And it caused such amazement and wonder in the people that they're like, we need to hear more about this. And so what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 5 is he, he gave something called the Beatitudes, which we covered already. And then he went on to begin to talk about how he is different than the teachers who were before him. Because at the time, Jesus was coming and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time were, were looking at him and saying, hey, he's teaching something new and different. In fact, he can't be trusted. And so one of the ways that Jesus introduces himself to the crowd who's listening to him is saying, hey, you've heard it said that, that I've come to, to abolish the law and destroy it, that I'm as, as if presenting a new way to God. I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And let me give you an illustration. And he went on to give six illustrations. And he said, okay, here's, here's what you used to hear. You used to hear that it was bad, it was bad, it was wrong to murder somebody. But I tell you that if you're even angry with your brother in your heart, you have committed murder against him. And you have heard it said that it's bad to commit adultery with someone else. But I'm telling you that if you've ever had a lustful thought for another man or a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart toward them. And you've heard it said that there's certain conditions where you can get divorced and it can be okay. But I'm telling you that before you even think of getting out of your marriage, you need to remember why you're in in the first place. And, and you've heard it said that it's the right to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you that you love your enemy and care for those who persecute you. And Jesus took all of these Old Testament laws, and he went under them. 
And we talked about, as we covered all of these, we said Jesus is telling the people, go deeper, not farther. In other words, don't add on to the law human regulations that make you legalistic. Don't go farther and farther and farther and add on and keep adding on and keep adding on so that all you have is a bunch of human regulations for how we connect to God. Jesus is taking us deeper rather than farther. And then as he moves through the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6, which we began last time we were in this series, he says, now let me talk to you about your spiritual life. Let me talk to you about how you connect to God. And as we think about how we connect to God, Jesus began to talk in three ways. He said, in your giving, in your praying, and in your fasting. Those three things should be done in secret. Because your heavenly Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Again, deeper, not farther. In other words, we're not going to keep track of your church attendance. We're not going to keep track of how many hours you pray. We're not going to keep track of what you put in the offering plate when it goes by. That you're giving, you're fasting, you're praying. The essence of your connection with God should be done in private. So that your heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you for that. Because it's not about our externals. It's about going deeper. And now where Jesus takes us and leads us into this passage this morning, now where he takes us is probably the most practical, tangible way that you and I could ever measure our spiritual growth and our spiritual connection with God. He takes us to a place that that for anybody, no matter if you are six years old, 60 years old, or 600 years old, no matter where you are in this world, no matter what demographic, no matter if you're in kindergarten or you've graduated or you're getting married, you're retiring, wherever you are in this world, wherever you are, this issue impacts all of us all the time. This is something that competes for your heart and my heart unlike anything else that I know. And it is perhaps the greatest barometer, the greatest way to measure where your heart is for God. We all want to know, boy, I want to get closer to God. I want to connect with him. I want to be honest and have a life of integrity before him. But how do I know? How do I know if I'm growing? How do I know if I'm making any progress? And this issue this morning is perhaps the most simple and tangible way to know where my heart is before God. In fact, Jesus speaks about this single issue more than any other single issue in the New Testament. This is the single most talked about thing that Jesus discusses in the New Testament. And that is, that is this issue of money and possessions and our stuff. Now, when I say that to you, there's probably a few different responses. Some of you might be welcoming a conversation about money and wealth and stuff. Some of you are um, constantly interested in knowing if you're being good stewards. You want to save well. You want to manage the resources that God has given you well. And so you welcome a biblical reflection on giving and uh, theology of stuff, you welcome it. You're always thinking about it anyway, so you would welcome this. There's others this morning who are like, "Mm, I think I know what he's going to say, because I've been in church before, and what he's going to say is, God owns it all, we're supposed to be stewards, and give generously. All right? 
Can we wrap it up and go home? I mean, this is, this is the... Others of you are like, hmm, church and money, they go together like... What is it? Anyway, I forget what it is. They just go together. Isn't it funny? This is the only place where you come and you volunteer to come and we just pass stuff in front of you and you give money to it. You don't, I mean, you don't walk away with anything else in your pocketbook. You don't walk away with anything else in your hand. You just walk away. That's it. You just give money. For what? I don't know for what. We can't tell people why. They, they just, you just give money. This is the only place that happens. So some of you are like, the church is always interested in money and they just want my money. So here's, here's the deal. This morning, Jesus gives us a perspective. He gives us a perspective, and it's kind of like, maybe the best way to understand this is it's a perspective that is, that is given to us that actually coaches men and women all across the country try to give this same kind of perspective to little people who are trying to learn the great game of baseball. Do you ever watch a t-ball game? I remember my first t-ball game. Again, growing up in the Caribbean, I didn't play baseball. We didn't have baseball in Barbados. We had cricket, but it was a different deal. So I come here, and I'm a young adult at the time, and I see my first t-ball game. It's amazing. There's like 19 people in the, on playing defense, and they're all in the infield, right? And you have uh, a right fielder who is, I think, maybe two to three feet behind first base. And there's two of them, you know, right, right there. And the, the girl, it happened to be a girl because she was the first one up the bat. She stands up by the, the tee thing here, and she is ready to tee off. And her mom, it must be her mom. I don't know her. I don't know her mom. It must be her mom. Her mom is just pumped, like, go. And I forget her name. Go, whatever your name is. Go, go, go. As if she's going to miss. I mean, it's, it's right there. Like, okay. Kids miss. All right. I've learned that. Kids miss that. And so she connects. Man, she hits a screaming shot. It goes between, like, three people's legs and... Rolls to the pitcher's mound and over the pitcher's mound, and she just takes off like a bat out of Hades toward first base. She is running toward first base, and she gets about a foot from first base. And instead of running through the base, through the bag, she makes like this declaration of, I've arrived, and she jumps onto first base, at which time then her pants fall down. <laughs> no, seriously. Your pants were too big, and so, oh, and she grabs them right here and, and pulls them up, and this is my introduction to t-ball <laughs> in America. And so these coaches all across our great land are trying to take this kind of raw talent and shape it into something productive and helpful. And I'm not a baseball coach, right? But here's one of the things I know, that you have to teach these kids where to swing and where not to swing. You don't put that T up here or down toward their ankles. You put it in the strike zone. You you put it in the strike zone. And one of the the fundamental realities of baseball is you got to teach kids where is the strike zone. So T-ball, set it there. It moves on in your baseball deal. You've got coaches doing slow pitch from about three feet away. Like, come on in. Right there, the, the goal to try to get it in the strike zone. And then kids start pitching and they're a little closer and then a little further away. Then you get to high school and onto the big leagues and it's further away, obviously. The idea is if you can teach a kid to have a good eye for the strike zone, they will be more successful, right? 
If they don't ever understand, if they don't develop a good eye for the strike zone, they are going to be unsuccessful and swinging at balls all the time. Here's the thing. Jesus gives us a financial strike zone in Matthew chapter 6. And there are, there are, there are going to be for you, there are going to be millions of decisions that are going to be pitched at you that you are going to have to decide, does this fit in my strike zone? Should I get another car? Like, how much money should I spend on coffee a week? Is it okay to have 12 pairs of jeans, or is, is three the right amount? How much should I save for college, and how much debt should I take on? How much should I work, and should I... Uh, neglect my family to make more money or be with my family and not have enough money to support them. We make, we make millions of financial decisions all the time. And here's the thing, we all have different strike zones that we have been trained to see. For me, I've been trained to see a strike zone that is primarily about savings. So for me, when a decision comes down the pike and here comes the ball, what should I do with this decision? My first thought is, is, is this a savings thing? Like, can I get that for less? Can, can, I, can I get that for free? How, how can I do this without taking on debt? And so for me, when that decision comes down the pike, I feel like I get a hit when I feel like I've saved. I've saved. For, for some of you, your strike zone is different. For some of you, your strike zone is today. Like, I just need to get through today. Who can control tomorrow? We're not supposed to worry about tomorrow. So tomorrow, whatever. Today, I need to make decisions for today. And so I've made it through today with my family. We needed something. I got it. I made it through today. And I feel like I got a hit when I do that. Some of you, your strike zone right now is retirement. And everything that comes down the pike, you're making a decision based on what will that do for my retirement future? What will that do for my portfolio? Well, what is that going to do if I decide to go there and do this and get the cabin or not get the cabin? Is it time to sell or buy? Mm. Everything is kind of run through the strike zone of retirement. Some of you are into the college thing. Like, i got to pay for college at some point, so I might need to get a job now and start saving. And what about you know, scholarships and loans and how much do I work and how much should I buy and all that? And everything is run through the strike zone of is this going to work for college? Some of you are trying to get married and go on dates, and you're like, man, I just need money to go on dates. I realize that now. I can't just freebie it the whole time. So everything is kind of run through that grid, and there is your strike zone. And so we all have, we all have different strike zones financially where we feel like, man, I'm spending well, I'm working well, that was a hit and not a miss. And by default, we all have those. And what Jesus offers to us in this section is he offers us a principle to replace my default and to replace your default strike zone with his. And here's the simple principle. Generosity, generosity should define our financial strike zones. Generosity should define our financial strike zones. And I don't, I don't care how old or young you are, generosity, not saving, not spending, not investing, not storing up for generosity should define 
our financial strike zones where we begin to feel like that was generous. That's a hit. That cost me something. That's a hit. That was just for me and no one else, and that was a ball, but I still swung at it anyway. Generosity should define our financial strike zones. This is Jesus' commendation to us. Now, let's see his words. Let's look at his words. If you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you. Uh, It's either on page 786 or 938. 786 or 938. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, we're being generous. That Bible that you hold that's our pew Bible is, your, is our gift to you. You can take that Bible that is yours to have and keep if you would like that. All right, and that's on page 786 or 938 in your pew Bible. Jesus is speaking here, and he says in verse 19, it's a passage that's familiar to many of you. Um, and here, here he goes. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves Break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. I'm going to pause it right there. Here's where Jesus begins. He begins with a do not, right? Do not store up rather than do. He starts with a negative. Why? Because this is our default, right? This is my default. This is probably yours. By default, this is what we want to do. By default, we are taught to, we've got to protect and care for and provide for ourselves. So he's saying, do not do the thing that comes naturally to you in this way. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt. Now here's what you need to know. You've got to put yourself now in the shoes and the sandals, if you will, of, of the crowd that is listening. For us, most of our treasure is stored in the bank Right? Most of our treasure is stored in stocks or bonds, real estate, IRAs, money market accounts. We have most of our treasure stored in places like financial institutions that we feel relatively comfortable with their safety. Banking, as we know it today, did not exist in this time. So Jesus is speaking to a group of people who would immediately think, oh yeah, okay, Um, Where moth and rust don't destroy. For us, we're like, moth and rust destroying my IRA? Really? How does that connect with anything? For for the audience at the time, their wealth, their value, their treasure was typically within their their fabrics, the the clothes that they had, their um, their hard coinage, if you will, their, um, their, their hard materials that they would keep in their homes. So you imagine, just take all the things that you saved, the stuff you put in the bank the past 10 years, 50 years, whatever it is, and you have it in your home now. Everything that defines your treasure is now in your home, and you've locked it up in a secret place. But here's your problem. You have a mud brick home, and thieves break in and steal. That word for break in literally means dig in, because this is what would happen. They would just dig into your home. And they would steal it. They would take it because it was all there. And so these people are sitting there thinking, yeah, I I have a closet full of gold-laced material at home and my purple fabric, that is really valuable. My perfumes, those are really valuable. And my family jewelry, that's really valuable. And my iPhone 5 is really valuable. And my computers are really valuable. And my stuff is, is really 
valuable, and I really don't want that to go anywhere. And Jesus is saying, get a picture of that, okay? Get a picture of your valuable stuff. And don't store up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust corrupt and destroy. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven. And then he gives the principle. The principle that you, you probably know, even if you haven't been in the Bible much. Verse 20 is the principle. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so here's why I say that this is probably the most significant and, and, and tangible way to tell where your heart is toward God. That if I want to find your heart, I look for your treasure. If you want to find my heart, you just look for my treasure. Because where you put your treasure, your heart is also. I'm going to put my treasure in Vanguard. I'm going to put my treasure in the IRA. I'm going to put my treasure in my home, my kids. I'm going to put my treasure in my cabin. I'm going to put my treasure in my hobby, in my husband, my wife, my kids, my grandkids. I'm going to put my treasure here and where you put your treasure, your heart is. So if I want to find your heart, I just find your treasure. There's Martin Luther that once said that the... um, the, um, the, the hardest thing to be converted or the last thing to be converted in a man or a woman is his wallet or is his pocketbook. And that's the reality, that this is such a tangible expression of our lives, that this is why Jesus goes here. And listen, this is so much a part of defining who you are and who I am, is what we do with our stuff. It's a spiritual issue. And where you put the treasure is where we put our heart. And so then I ask the question, all right, this is fair. I believe this. This sounds good in principle. But okay, how do I do this? How, how do I do that? How do I store up treasures in heaven? I mean, how do I not store up treasures on earth? Aren't I supposed to take care of my family? Can I enjoy things that you've given me as good gifts? I mean, how do I do this? How do I do this? And what I want, because I'm a little more detail-oriented and have some issues with that in my life, I want to know... I want to know, how do I do this? Give me something really simple that I can get to, three key points or whatever, that will help me know. Because I want to know, should I, should I have a car? Should I have two, is two cars okay? What, what if I had five? And the people around me thought that was excessive. Is that excessive, or is it just that you guys have a problem with me having five cars? I mean, tell me, God, what, what am I supposed to do? How many Pieces of whatever am I supposed to have? How many homes am I supposed to have? How many cars? How many pairs of jeans? How many pairs of shoes? How many hats? How many computers? How many phones? How much, what in the world is this, does this mean? How do I do this? And this is where Jesus says, go deeper, not farther. Go deeper, not farther. Don't make up human regulations for this issue. Don't create arbitrary lines where one person is judging another that says, oh, they got that. I can't believe they got that. I can't believe they spent their money. Let's pray for them. can't believe they did. Wow, I'm so happy for them that they did that. Unbelievable. This is not what Jesus calls us to. He gives us a principle. He goes there in the next verse. Check it out. Verse 22. Here's what he says. Because people are asking the how question. How, how, how. And he knows this. We're going to ask the how. And then he says this. Okay. The eye is the lamp of the body. 
And then he says this. This is a key point here. If your eyes are what? Good. Good. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Let's go back to our baseball analogy. Let's say that you were a little league coach, and you took this this little kid, and you taught him with great discipline the strike zone. Boom, there it is. He is getting it. He is progressing, and he's excelling because he is like a little Albert Pujols. He just sees the ball so well, and he knows where the zone is. He's an incredible hitter. Now, he makes it to the big leagues. He happens to play for the Phillies. They get back to the playoffs. It's a significant time in the game. Ninth inning, you know the scenario, right? Ninth inning, down by one, full count. You need a runner on base. So here comes the pitch. You're watching at home, and the, the pitch is coming in. You're all nervous sitting around there, and here comes the pitch. And he kind of does one of these things to start the swing and pulls back. And it's a borderline pitch. And you're waiting in that moment between when the ball thumps the, pitcher, the catcher's glove and the umpire declares striker ball. You're waiting to know, should he have done that? And the umpire makes no move, and you know that means ball four. Free pass to first base. And you say, good eye. Good eye. Good eye. You saw the right thing. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to us. There is such a thing that exists as a good eye and a bad eye. And the good eye financially sees when the decision that comes down the pike is one that I should swing at or let go. And that principle... That principle is the principle of generosity. And here's why this is so important. This word for good, if you have a different translation with you, you will see that this word is translated as um, healthy or clear or whole. And it comes from a word family that has two meanings. And this is, this is so important this morning. The, the two meanings, number one, single-minded. That the eye, this good eye is a single-minded eye, ball or strike. That's all I'm looking for. I'm looking at one thing. Is that in my zone? I'm single-minded on that. That's all I see. The second thing that this word means is generous. When Jesus says, if you have a good eye, what he is saying is, if you have a single-minded eye on generosity, you are going to strike, you're going to hit at strikes, and you're going to let the balls Go. This is the powerful statement that Jesus makes. He doesn't give us principles beyond that. He doesn't say, hey, only have one car. You don't have 10 TVs, just two is enough. That's ridiculous. When you have a single minded eye on generosity, when your eye is good, your life is full of light. But when your eye is off of generosity, Your world is full of darkness. And then he goes on to say, the last principle in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. And this is troubling, this statement. You cannot serve both God and money. So, 
When I step up to the financial plate in my life, and my, I already told you, my grid, my default strike zone is savings. Some call it stewardship, whatever you want to call it, right? But savings, that's really my default. And I look at things that come down the line, should I or shouldn't I? And I'm thinking about savings. That's what I'm, I'm thinking about, savings all the time. When I make decisions based on that grid, I cannot serve God. When that becomes my primary grid through which I make all my decisions, I cannot serve both God and money. I just can't do it. I cannot serve both God and money. I can't, I can't do it. And this is such a profound statement. This is why the people who are sitting there at the end of his sermon are amazed at his teaching and his authority to teach. So I can't serve. So if I'm primarily making decisions, financial decisions coming down the pike, and I'm thinking about, first of all, college only, and I'm thinking only about retirement, and I'm only thinking about my family, and I'm only thinking about, I'm only, and I'm not thinking of a single-minded generosity, then you're telling me in, in that, those times, I am not serving God. Yes. Which is why many people say, Jesus is ridiculous. What an incredibly high standard he calls us to. Yes. And what an incredible fullness of life he offers to us as well. Yes. We cannot serve both God and money. And when you have a good eye, we see with that single-minded generosity. Now let's play this out a little bit more. Let's play this out in terms of what this means and what we are and what we are not saying. What we're not saying, to try to define this a little bit more, because we can, we can keep it at a broad level and it makes a little bit of sense, but let's bring it down a little bit more. What we're not saying is this, that money is bad, okay? We're not saying money is bad. And in, in particular, let me say this, in Proverbs 6, we read about wise people working hard to make money and provide during times that are lean. You are wise and you are biblical if you are working hard and making money to provide during lean times. This is biblical. We're also not saying money's bad. We mean that, that believers especially are supposed to provide for their families. You should make enough where you can provide for your family. First Timothy 5 talks about that. If you are not providing for your family, this is a problem. This is unbiblical and ungodly. In um, the book of 1 Timothy 4 and 6, we read that God has given us things to enjoy. That, that money can, can give us things, we can purchase things, have things, quote-unquote, own things, that we can enjoy, and that can be, listen to this, this can be right and good and okay. You shouldn't have a guilty conscience about enjoying the things that you have in this life. This should not overwhelm you. In fact, there was a man named Job who happened to be the most wealthy man at his time, right? As well as the most godly man in his time, right? So we see biblically that you can be both very, very wealthy and be considered very, very righteous and very godly, right? Okay, that's important, that's important. I need you to hear that, all right? We got that? You can be very godly and very wealthy, but you can also be very wealthy and very selfish, right? 
think our projector just died. Maybe we'll just kill it. Um, you can also be very um, wealthy and very selfish, right? And so, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to put the rest up here, but here's the deal. What we're not saying is money is bad, but what we are saying is that the love of money, you know this, you guys know this, right? The, the love of money is bad. That it's that affection toward it, it's that movement of my heart toward it where I want it more and more and more, and it just drives what I do. That's not in the strike zone. It's way outside the strike zone. Because I can't serve God and money at the same time. I just can't. I just can't do it. It's not possible. So, generosity. Generosity defines our strike zones, okay? A verse you may want to jot down is in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 11, 24 to 25. The projector has died itself. Proverbs 11, 24 to 25. It says this, One man gives freely yet gains even more, and another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. And then, in verse 25, we read this. A generous man will prosper. Let me read that again. A generous man will run out of money. No, no, no. A generous man will prosper. Okay? He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Now, there's all kinds of things to say about generosity, uh, biblically speaking, about how we can see it, how we can overcome it, why we resist it, and primarily we resist it, ooh, there we go, because we think we're going to run out of money and run out of stuff. And so here's what I've done for you today. This is free for the price of coming. Or maybe this is what you get for putting your dollars in the plate. I don't know. All right? There's a handout here that is available to you on the back, on the Welcome Center on the way out, and in it I attempt to give more detail, more specifics about how we should think about finances and generosity for you. So you can take that if you have a small group or a Sunday school class or you just want to look at it with your spouse this week. It has verses and principles attached to it to help you think in greater detail about how should I make financial decisions and what does it look like to think generously together. Now, let me, let me throw out here two things, two questions to ask yourself as you try to bring this down home, and that is, how do I do this? Number one, where does my mind go without any effort? Where does my mind go without any effort? When you are, are here and you have a free moment, when you are driving home from work, um, when you are getting up in the morning and it's just quiet in your place, uh, when you're about to hit the pillow at night, where does your mind go without any effort at all? There's an archbishop, his name is William Temple. He said, your, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, in your most quiet and private moments. Where does, where does my mind go without any effort? It's a simple question. Where do you find joy and comfort in what we do? Related to our, our money in particular. Second question is this. Does my generosity change me? Does my generosity change me? For some of us, you, we've, we've fallen into a, a pattern of, of giving or not giving. But we've made decisions about how we're going to handle our money 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. We really haven't even thought about it much since then. We might give a certain portion here or a certain portion there and every now and then we kind of come back to it. But let me ask you, 
When is the last time that being generous has impacted your spiritual condition? When is the last time that being generous has changed your heart from the inside out, where you have felt like, hmm, that was the right thing to do. That cost something here, but it was, it was good. It was right. We needed to review our regular giving. We needed to do that. Because I haven't really thought about it for a long time. Just haven't done that. How does your generosity right now change you spiritually? Because this is what it's meant to do. To pull us toward our Savior and away from ourselves. There's this strike zone. And Jesus says, if you have a good eye, your life will be full of light. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So this strike zone of single-minded generosity is what Jesus offers to us. To train our eyes. To train our eyes to see that. And the more and more we see that, the more we're going to get hits. And the less and less we're going to ground out and be disappointed and frustrated and empty with the stuff that we have and that we own. It's a great challenge. Single-minded generosity. Let's pray together. Our good Father, our great God, we come to you this morning with a desire to please you. We, we want to honor you with our lives. We come, some here this morning are curious about you and others are uh, wondering, you know, what uh, end is up in this church thing and Jesus thing and all that. But, but others are here because they say, you know what, I, this is what I want. I want my life to count and I want it to make a difference for my family, for my kids, for my uh, grandkids. I want this to matter. And what we've seen this morning is this is a very easy way to look at the condition of our heart by looking at where our treasure is located. And, and yet you challenge us in that to say, Single-minded generosity is the strike zone in which we should always have our finances in order through. We always need to see things through this lens of single-minded generosity. And so I pray for the courage that it, it takes for people like me and others who, whose primary grid is savings, whose primary grid is keeping things for the rainy day when you might need more money to cover that. And I pray that you'd help us to, to really own the tension this creates within us, this tension to fight against this concept and this idea of generosity, to move us beyond ourselves into greater kingdom living, to serve one another well, to care for one another well, to love one another well. Father, I know and, and you know that no matter how we approach this, that you're able to help us. You're you're able to bring us through. You're able to bring us through the tensions that we fight through. You're able to help us move into greater and greater generosity even when we don't feel it and want it. And so as this song says that you are with us, you're on our side, you'll make a way far above all we know and all we hope that you have done great things. And I don't think there's any one of us sitting here this morning who would have preferred you to be less generous to us Help us when we struggle to be more generous.
to others. We thank you, Father, that you are able to shape us and change us and move us. We pray this in Jesus' name.